Well, uh, good afternoon, everybody. We're going to get started here. Welcome. This is a Cato Institute Hill briefing entitled Low-Hanging Fruit, Guarded by Dragons, Reforming Regressive Regulation to Boost U.S. Economic Growth. I am Peter Russo. I'm the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute. I want to thank you all for coming on a very beautiful day. You had lots to give up on. So uh, as the presidential elections begin in earnest, accurate levels of partisanship and vitriol will accumulate as each side's jockey for position. What we've heard so far from the frontrunners are highly partisan in nature and are pointedly anathematic to the other side, causing yet further division. And this will no doubt continue until the party conventions conclude next summer. In the meantime, however, I bring you good news. Our panelists today will explore four areas where real compromise can be constructed, ideas that can bridge party lines and significantly contribute to shaping a pro-growth policy agenda at all levels of government that both parties can and have supported. They seem unrelated at first, but they all share a similar characteristic by containing elements that contribute to significant barriers of entry for the real drivers of growth, new and developing entrepreneurs. Briefly, they are copyright and patent law, restrictions on high-skilled immigration, occupational licensing, and land use regulations. However, reforming these areas is not without peril, and one can expect a considerable fight. But it's a fight that aligns on something other than traditional party principles. Earlier this year, the Cato Institute published a document found on your chairs that explores these issues in some detail. Let me introduce our panelists who will discuss all of this and amply illuminate a path forward for reformers looking to find common ground and the other side, uh, with the other side and one that leads to a brighter future for all Americans. Uh, to my left is Frank Lindsay, the author of the paper. He is Cato's Vice President for Research and has written on a wide range of topics including trade policy, globalization, American social and cultural history, and the nature of human capital. His current research focuses on economic growth and the policy barriers that impede it. An accomplished author, Lindsay has written several books including Human Capitalism, How Economic Growth Has Made Us Smarter and More Unequal. In addition, his writings have been published widely in major newspapers and leading policy magazines, and he has appeared frequently on television and radio. Lindsay earned an AB from Princeton University and his JD from Harvard Law School. Uh, Neil G. Ruiz is Executive Director for George Washington University's Center for Law, Economics, and Finance. He is an internationally recognized expert on the political economy of the global race for talent, skills, and labor. He has spent the past decade as a research scholar at the Brookings Institution, the World Bank, and the Asian Development Bank working on policy issues related to entrepreneurship, education, and economic development. His studies have been widely cited in the leading media outlets. Ruiz has also has also some experience in the startup and entrepreneurship sectors, so he can speak firsthand on some of this. And he holds a PhD in political science from MIT, as well as degrees from Oxford University and UC Berkeley. And last, Sam Batkins is Director of Regulatory Policy at the American Action Forum, where he examines the rulemaking efforts of administrative agencies and Congress. His work, too, has appeared in the leading news publications, and he has testified before the US House, Senate, and state legislatures around the country. Just prior to joining the forum, Batkins worked at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, where he focused on lawsuit abuse, tort reform, and federal regulation. He received his JD from Catholic University of America, Columbus School of Law, and he is a member of the Maryland Bar. So each will speak for about 12 to 15 minutes, after which we'll open it up to questions. So Brink, take it away. Thank you very much, Peter, and thank all of you for coming. Uh, I'm going to give a uh, bad news, good news kind of talk today, and uh, since we're all uh, mature adults, well-schooled in deferring gratification, I'll start with the bad news and save the dessert for last. 
the bad news is that the lousy economy that we've been in since the Great Recession uh, struck in 2008 uh, is very likely to be the new normal. Uh, <clears throat> we've been uh, searching uh, avidly, vociferously, hopefully, for green shoots for a rapid uh, turnaround uh, since uh, disaster struck, and uh, <clears throat> we're still waiting. Um, all, it took over three years for the level of output to just get back to the pre-recession level, uh, and we are nowhere uh, close to getting back to the uh, long-term economic growth trend uh, before the recession. Normally, if you have a steep recession, you have a steep rebound. We had nothing of the kind, and so uh, the trajectory of growth going forward uh, looks uh, much lower than we thought it would be uh, <clears throat> back in 2007 and before. Uh, you look at uh, leading forecasts for uh, long-term potential growth, that is growth assuming full employment and full utilization of resources. Uh, it's way down from the long-term uh, U.S. historical average. As far back as we have anything like reliable statistics until recently, uh, the long-term U.S. growth rate was remarkably consistent. Uh, that real, that is inflation-adjusted GDP per capita, grew at an annual rate of around 2%. That's the average from 1870 uh, to 2010. Um, but going forward, uh, projections are for real GDP per capita growth uh, in the range of 1% to 1.5%, so somewhere between a half and two-thirds of the, uh, of the <clears throat> uh, long-term historical rate. That's a big change if it persists over time. Uh, I'm not going to get into the reasons why uh, in any detail now. There's a paper on your, uh, on your chairs that I wrote back in 2013 that explains this isn't just because of the nature of this recession or policy uh, mistakes that were made in the aftermath of the recession. This is deep structural demographic factors that well predate the recession, basically uh, <clears throat> uh, labor Force participation rate growth stalled out and now has been going into sharp decline. So labor hours worked per capita are going down. Uh, likewise, uh, the growth in so-called labor quality or the or uh, labor skills has slowed way down as educational attainment has slowed down. Both of these factors and mobilization of more and more a higher and higher percentage of the population making GDP for a living and <clears throat> more educated, more highly skilled workers were big tailwinds for economic growth throughout the 20th century. They're more or less exhausted now. To compensate for that shortfall, you would need to have a robust, record-breaking productivity growth. We don't have that. We had 10 years of it in the, from the mid-90s to the mid-0s, but it's gone now, and we're back in the slumping, low productivity growth that we've had since the 1970s. So put all this together, uh, there's just no reason to expect, absent some completely unpredicted and possible productivity growth spike, uh, for uh, growth to stay on track from what we're used to. Uh, so that's the bad news. Uh, the good news, I think, is that this is going to open up political opportunities for real, meaningful economic policy reform. Um, and uh, the logic here is that there's a kind of inverse relationship between the external conditions for growth on the one hand uh, and the quality of economic policy making on the other. Uh, if external conditions for growth are easy, uh, then politicians can indulge in uh, all their characteristic vices, focusing on time horizons that stop at the next election cycle, uh, thinking exclusively about dividing the pie rather than growing it, uh, and still the economy will hum along fine and performance will be good. Um, if, however, uh, growth gets harder, uh, as, for example, these external demographic factors shift, uh, that means that either 
Politicians have to up their policymaking game and improve policy, uh, or economic performance will suffer. Uh, that's what we're going through right now. Uh, and when economic performance suffers, the electorate gets uh, uh, itchy, angry, upset. Uh, incumbent parties' poll numbers start going down. Uh, challengers' poll numbers start going up. Plan Bs start uh, getting serious consideration. <clears throat> now, it could be that Plan B is worse than the status quo. Uh, so that's a risk. Uh, but if you look around the world over the past several decades, uh, the general trend in economic policymaking globally uh, since the mid-1970s has been to move slowly, not so steadily, uh, in a pro-market uh, direction towards less uh, direct government control over the economy, towards more reliance on competition and entrepreneurship uh, to power uh, economic activity. Um, and in general, uh, that uh, that move towards liberalization has been uh, catalyzed by poor economic performance. Uh, that uh, as economies falter, pragmatic politicians scramble around to do something, uh, and they've tried everything else, so let's try freer markets. Um, uh, certainly in our own case, the last time we had uh, real <clears throat> wide-ranging, thoroughgoing uh, pro-market, pro-competition uh, regulatory reform was in the late 70s, early 80s, against the backdrop of lousy economic performance stagflation. Um, so the, if, if this is right, uh, if the silver lining of this dark economic cloud is the possibility uh, for, uh, for, uh, for meaningful policy change uh, as policy steps that previously, when times were fine, were just thought too politically difficult to deal with, now look like, well, maybe we're going to have to tackle that uh, because the alternative of looking like you're doing nothing is worse. Uh, how do we take advantage of this window of opportunity? Uh, so the fact is there's lots of policy battles up and running right now. The biggest ones that have been absorbing our attention in recent years, tax and budget battles, um, health care, financial regulation, uh, what to do about illegal immigration, climate change, environmental regulation, all of these uh, big policy battles uh, have important implications for growth. Uh, and, and I think, therefore, and so how those battles turn out is going to uh, certainly impact uh, long-term U.S. economic performance. Uh, but, at, but precisely because those battles are up and running, the battle lines are clearly drawn, they're very highly polarized with left and right far apart, R's and D's far apart. Uh, this is, I think, these are not suitable uh, agenda items for a new pro-growth agenda. Uh, what we need, this is a new problem, the growth slowdown. Uh, we don't just need recycled policy ideas from past fights that were motivated by goals and priorities other than growth. Uh, we need uh, a new suite of issues uh, that is responsive to this uh, new and unprecedented uh, problem. Uh, and um, in particular, given the polarized uh, political environment, uh, it would be <clears throat> a huge plus if we could find uh, agenda items that don't cleave predictably and deeply along left-right Republican-Democrat lines. Uh, these days, as soon as any idea gets labeled a Republican idea or a Democratic idea, then you can be pretty sure that the other side is going to fight tooth and nail against it. It's going to be a bad idea. It's going to kill the country. Uh, so. Uh, once you get into the uh, uh, polarization zone, uh, you can pretty much give up uh, on, uh, on <clears throat> uh, bipartisan uh, agreement. Uh, and these days, uh, <clears throat> in recent years, with both sides within striking distance of power, 
uh, nobody is willing to, uh, to compromise very much because that undermines their case in the next election cycle for why they should be in charge. You don't want to give the other side a, a win. So in this environment, if you fall into the polarization zone, you're very likely to fall into the quagmire zone. Uh, so if we could find pro-growth policies uh, that avoid uh, that impasse, uh, that would be a big plus. Uh, and in particular, uh, if you could find policies where there's a kind of intellectual consensus amongst experts, whether they uh, tend to vote for Republicans or tend to vote for Democrats, that reform is a good idea, uh, then you can get outside of this uh, polarized uh, box. So searching around for those kinds of policies uh, to take advantage of what I see to be this window of opportunity, uh, I hit upon a suite of policies that I call regressive regulation. The, the basic common denominator is that these are uh, policies that are barriers to entry, that are direct uh, obstacles to entrepreneurship and to competition, which I think are the, uh, are the factors that drive innovation uh, more than anything else. Uh, and innovation is the ultimate source of long-term growth in an advanced economy at the technological frontier like ours. Uh, <clears throat> so entry barriers, barriers to entrepreneurship and, uh, and competition uh, that work to uh, redistribute income up the uh, socioeconomic scale, income and wealth. Um, so these kinds of policies uh, tend to fall into a kind of ideological no man's land. Uh, Republicans like deregulation, but they don't tend to push for deregulation that might uh, uh, reduce incomes and rents of some of their stock constituencies. Democrats typically uh, support regulation as needed to soften uh, capitalism's rough edges, uh, but they're going to be unlikely to be enthusiastic about regulations uh, that entrench privilege and deepen disadvantage. So in this space, uh, you can find policies that don't have a clear left versus right coloration. Uh, the four policies that Peter mentioned and that are, I discuss in some detail in the paper uh, fall into this category. Uh, just running through them uh, quite briefly, um, uh, intellectual property, uh, copyright and patents laws, uh, those are justified on the grounds that they uh, promote innovation and they do help some innovators uh, by raising the returns uh, on their production of new ideas, uh, but they also have costs. Uh, first, they uh, raise the prices of copyrighted or patented goods significantly above what they would otherwise be, and that imposes a deadweight loss on consumers. Uh, and secondly, they impose a cost on downstream innovators. Uh, so uh, almost all innovation consists of recombining existing ideas in new and interesting and useful ways, uh, but if those ideas, access to those ideas is made more expensive or, uh, or just <clears throat> uh, impossible uh, through patent and copyright uh, restrictions, then that <clears throat> ends up uh, exerting downward pressure on innovation. Uh, and the fact is, in intellectual property law, uh, the costs uh, have been rising dramatically over the past couple of decades. In copyright, through the wildly excessive extension of copyright terms, uh, through the criminalization of copyright violations, including the use of civil asset forfeiture, um, and uh, through the kind of ongoing hostility to any new technology that might be used uh, to copy, uh, uh, to do unauthorized copying. Um, starting with the VCR and going through YouTube to MP3 to, uh, to all kinds of <clears throat> file sharing technologies today. Um, on uh, high skill immigration, uh, immigrants uh, are disproportionately likely to start new businesses, and in particular, immigrants are disproportionately likely to start the high tech, high growth uh, businesses uh, that, uh, that are the pride of America's innovative, uh, uh, most innovative sectors. 
Uh, a lot of polls show that about 25% of, of big high-tech firms founded in recent decades have at least one foreign-born co-founder, this during a period when immigrants made up between 5 and 15% uh, and, uh, uh, of the population, so very disproportionate. Uh, <clears throat> however, uh, we don't do much of anything in our immigration system to attract and bring in uh, the most talented, uh, um, most highly skilled uh, immigrants. We give out about a million green cards a year. 70,000 of those uh, go to individuals on the basis of their economic qualifications. Uh, so 7%, uh, that's not much. We also have temporary visas, H-1B visas. There's about 650,000 people with H-1B visas in the country at any one time, uh, which compared to 160 million workers, uh, ain't much. Um, so uh, there's huge room for uh, for simply not turning away the best and the brightest that want to come here uh, and want to start new businesses and want to innovate. Um, occupational licensing is a state and uh, local issue primarily, um, but has national economic consequences. Uh, it's an area that has grown a lot in recent decades. Back in 1970, about 10% of U.S. workers were subject to occupational licensing. They needed a license for the government before they could do their job. Now it's almost 30%. Um, these laws, so it's not just doctors and lawyers, it's cosmetologists, interior decorators, florists, funeral directors, you name it. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of occupations have been subject to licensing. Uh, they're all justified in the name of uh, consumer protection. Most studies of most of these laws show virtually no discernible consumer benefit for most of them, uh, but they do have a very clear benefit for uh, incumbent uh, service providers. Uh, they jack up prices between 5 and 15% and they slow down employment uh, in those sectors uh, by about 20%. Um, finally, uh, local uh, zoning land use regulation, again, a local issue, far from uh, Congress's normal uh, uh, <clears throat> area of attention, and yet uh, what we have come to see in recent years is this has a big national impact. Um, growth in uh, land use regulation, particularly in the big coastal cities, has driven huge price spikes in housing. People tend to think it's just natural, these are desirable places, they don't make any more land, so they, these high prices are just natural market phenomena, but they're not. Uh, according to Ed Glazer, a Harvard economist, 20% of the price of a new home in Washington, Baltimore, and Boston is a regulatory tax due to land use regulation. In LA and Oakland, it's 30%. In San Francisco, San Jose, and Manhattan, it's 50%. Uh, this means that a lot of people want to move to our highest income, most productive cities, and they can't because they're priced out of the housing market, and this has a huge impact on the overall productivity of the country. A recent eye-popping estimate from a uh, Cal Berkeley economist, Enrico Moretti, says that if you took uh, the level of uh, land use regulation in the six most restrictive coastal cities and moved it down to the median level of regulation nationwide, uh, you would get a boost to overall U.S. output of 9.5%. That's a gigantic uh, number uh, in, uh, in these kinds of discussions. So, uh, and all of these areas, they're bad for growth, they're bad for innovation, uh, they're very good uh, for uh, the uh, uh, well-heeled, um, highly profitable industries or uh, extremely affluent individuals that profit from them. Uh, and so you have this regressive regulation mix. And I think uh, that putting these two things together, uh, you end up in a situation where in all of these areas you have pretty much an expert consensus across the board that the status quo is no good and that we should move in the direction of, of <clears throat> uh, more openness, more competition, uh, more entrepreneur-friendly uh, uh, policies. 
So I think uh, in addition to all the other battles that are going on, this idea of focusing on regressive regulation uh, creates the possibility of a, of a new front in the economic policy uh, debate, uh, one that looks very different from all the other ones that we're focusing on these days and that it's not divided along left-right lines. Instead, uh, it's uh, basically <clears throat> the uh, disinterested experts' uh, vision of the public interest versus the vested interests that profit from the status quo. Um, so, and so the <clears throat> because there is this consensus that all disinterested experts pretty much agree, that means that's the low-hanging fruit. We know that these policy changes would have a big impact, uh, and people across the board, uh, regardless of ideological or partisan affiliation, tend to agree. Uh, however, this low-hanging fruit uh, is guarded by dragons. Uh, it, these, the policy status quo is defended zealously by very strong, very well-organized, very muscular uh, <clears throat> uh, lobbies. Uh, so not easy, uh, but a completely different kind of uh, politics to this, uh, uh, to, to, in this uh, zone uh, that offers opportunities that we don't see in the uh, current polarized environment when we're slogging things out left versus right. Um, and just by way of reminder, the last time we did see uh, comprehensive, uh, bold, thoroughgoing uh, economic deregulation uh, in the 1970s, it was another left-right coalition. Uh, people who are uh, uh, much younger than me can be excused for thinking this whole deregulation era was just Ronald Reagan, uh, but it wasn't. Um, Jimmy Carter signed uh, airline trucking uh, deregulation, decontrol of oil and natural gas prices, um, Ted Kennedy led the fight for airline deregulation. Uh, yes, the rise of uh, the Chicago School economics played a big role in the in setting the intellectual uh, uh, climate for deregulation, but so did the activism of Ralph Nader, who campaigned uh, strongly against trucking regulation on the grounds that the ICC had been captured uh, by the industry. So history it never repeats itself, but sometimes it rhymes. Uh, and so perhaps uh, today we are in uh, in a period that's analogous to that of the 70s, lousy economic performance, uh, creating the possibility of strange bedfellows and real progress in economic policymaking. Thanks. Thank you very much to Cato Institute and Peter for inviting me to this. Um, and I'm going to talk about high-skilled immigration. This is an area that I've focused a lot on and worked on when I was at Brookings and continue to do research now. Um, we live in a very global world, very competitive world. Um, we now we have this, you know, trade trans-Pacific partnership or agreement that may be happening, and we have a lot of goods globalization, a lot of movement around the world with capital, especially to the United States. But in order to do that, you need people. People are what make these uh, these grow, uh, move, and then the biggest asset that we have in the United States are people, because we are the number one destination for immigrants around the world, and especially for high-skilled immigrants in particular, we're getting, we attract the best and brightest. This is what people always say, we attract the best and brightest. And, but we do have, we have a great family-based visa system that we've historically have um, had in the United States, but when it comes to skills, we are well far behind many, even many developing countries. Um, so let me just talk about kind of four different challenges. The first is that Foreign students have to deal with, I guess, a visa obstacle course in order to stay. U.S. is the number one um, destination for all foreign students around the world. We receive 21% of all students studying abroad. 
75% uh, of our foreign students come from the very fast-growing cities around the world. So these are, and they're very large markets. My studies have shown that large majority of them are coming from cities, mega cities, um, around, even within China, within India, within, um, around the world, especially in Asia and the Middle East. Two-thirds of them are studying in the high-demand STEM or business fields. 61% um, of them are studying at the Carnegie-ranked top schools with very high um, research um, activity. And many of our top PhD programs um, have well over 50% of their STEM programs um, enrolled with foreign students. Just to give you an example, Purdue University, a top-ranking college of engineering, has well over 60% of their students on F-1 visas as a foreign student visa. Foreign students also bring a lot of revenue. Um, it's a lot of money. We, as we had, the, you know, had to deal with the recession, a lot of state universities had to um, kind of scramble and cut their budgets, and foreign students came away in a weird way to save the budgets. They complemented um, native-born students um, in terms of supplementing the tuition because they pay full freight. And they were, giving about, they were um, contributing about $35 billion per year. This is just for bachelor's uh, and students and above um, during the 2008-2012 period. But um, students and high school immigrants, are some, they don't just um, add value in terms of money, but they're also economic ambassadors. If you think about it, they contribute to two economies at the same time. They, they have the language skills from their origin countries. They have the knowledge and the learning when they're students here in the United States of their new area, whether it's in Lafayette, Indiana, Chicago, New York. Um, and they have this local knowledge that's very important to places to facilitate the trade, to facilitate foreign direct investment, to facilitate production networks. That's what foreign students kind of add. But then if students want to stay, and we know that 45% of them stay choose to stay under the optical practical training program, they stay to work within their, the, the employer, for employers that, that were in their local, where, their, where they went to school. So just to give an example, New York, 75% um, of their foreign students graduates who um, opted for what's called the optional practical training program, that gives you one year to 29 months if you got a STEM degree, um, choose to stay and work for a New York employer. So they're retaining them. But then, when it comes to beyond the 12, 12 um, months or 29 months, they have to go into the H-1B race. Um, and as many of you probably heard, you know, the H-1B visa, there's only 85,000 available per year. Um, uh, 20,000 of them are set aside for foreign student graduates of U.S. universities. But the rest are, um, are 65,000 of them are... Um, have been well over, um, oversubscribed over the last um, decade. I mean, the last three years in particular. Just to give you an example, this past April, it was um, in one week, um, there was a lottery because they, they received more applicants than the 85,000, and about half of them were not, didn't receive the H-1B visa. This has been happening for the last several years. But then there's another obstacle. If you get the H-1B visa, that's only you know, up to six years, you have to get a green card if you want to stay permanently. And for many foreign students or anyone in H-1B visa, we have the 7% of all employment-based visas can only be given to a, a certain country. So can you imagine China, India are the biggest source of foreign students in the United States, but yet 7%, and these are really big countries. So your wait time will be up to 10 years if you're Indian. But if you're um, from Luxembourg, you, you know, 
take about a month. So that's kind of what our system has created. Secondly, startup companies are a disadvantage on the H-1B visa race. So as um, Brink talked about, you know, nearly about 40% of all Fortune 500 companies were started by immigrants or their children. <clears throat> Surveys show that the share of Silicon Valley startups with foreign-born founders decreased, actually, by, from 52% to 44% between 1995 and 2012. And some um, scholars have attributed this because of the multiple barriers for foreign entrepreneurs to get permanent residency um, in the United States. There is no dedicated visa for foreign startup founders. Um, many, and you have to also think, most of the H-1B visas are given to large companies, big companies, like think of Microsoft, Google, um, and most of them, because they have in-house attorneys. And if you're a startup company, you know, just five of you who have a very innovative idea, you, your in-house attorney is also one of the founders who's probably also doing the project management, doing multiple things. And you're at a disadvantage because you don't even know how to actually apply and play the game of, of getting an H-1B visa. So many smaller companies are, have a disadvantage of getting the um, visa, as well as there are wage requirements to get an H-1B visa. And if you're a founder of a company, you're not getting a wage. So you have maybe have equity in a potential multi-billion dollar company, but you can't show that at the very beginning. So Department of Labor will reject the application, so you wouldn't be able to get an H-1B visa. So that's actually a big challenge. The third um, problem I see is that the H-1B visa and green card quotas. Um, as I told you earlier, every April 1st, we have an archaic system, which is a first-come, first-serve um, system the, for H-1B visas. And the H-1B visa has been a catch-all visa, catching many different purposes. It's trying to retain foreign students. It's trying to get specialty-skilled workers that are on a temporary basis. It's trying to fill entrepreneurs starting up their own companies. And it's also filling, um, you could renew your visas beyond the six years if you're waiting, if your employer um, petitioned for your green card um, and so it's a waiting period for, is a waiting visa for those waiting for a green card. And also, it even has fashion models. For some strange reason, um, Congress um, added fashion models in the H-1B visas. But um, that just tells us how archaic and how it's just been kind of piecemealed and fixed over time, just to include many different purposes. Secondly, the problem is the green card wait times. We have no one country can get more than 7% of the total employment-based green cards in a given year. And there's about 120,000 per year available for green cards. This contributes to the long wait times, as I said earlier, for Indians and especially Chinese, Indian and Chinese, which could be, they could be waiting for more than 10 years. Then there's also valid concerns, uh, many that labor raise on, on workers um, from being protected from exploitation. The H-1B visa, if they're waiting for their green card over 10 years, you're not allowed to get another employer, to work for another employer. You have to stay within that same employer until you get your green card. So can you imagine the contributions that worker can be working well beyond their position or could be earning a lot more um, salary-wise, but they would be you know, reluctant to move because they would have to wait again in the, back, in the line for, for a green card. So there has been no, because there's been a lack of comprehensive reforms, we've always had these band-aid executive actions, executive solutions, um, especially with high-skill immigration. 
So George W. President George W. Bush back in 20, 2007, when it all failed again in several attempts, he expanded the OPT, that's the Optional Practical Training Program, because there's no cap on OPTs. These are for foreign students who graduate. He expanded it to 29 months for those with STEM degrees. But what did, what did that cause? That caused a new gray market to grow. It, um, instead of just you know, get, trying to retain foreign students, a lot of schools were created to take advantage of that. So I've seen University of Northern Virginia has been famous, as well as Tri-Valley University in Silicon Valley, where you had schools that were created just to get um, a student visa as a, uh, basically it was a work, they're using it as a work visa. These are schools that are pretending to be schools, but they're doing experiential learning so that students could actually work for Sil in, in Silicon Valley companies or here actually here in the Washington DC tech corridor. So this has been kind of inefficient, creating a big gray market. And this OPT, we have to remember, there's no minimum wages. You could actually be working for free. It's only been meant to be an um, extension of your studies. And President um, Bush has, been, has used it, as well as President Obama in last year's executive action. He actually also said he wanted to expand the OPT program because this is the only thing that they can do because they're waiting for Congress to do something. And, but it's creating, again, problems in, the, in, the, in our immigration system. So how do we move forward? The good news, there is bipartisan support. And every, all the years that I've been working on this, there's always been on both sides um, agreement on this. But again, the bad news is that we're, we're still, we really have to work through dealing with all the different issues. Um, we need not just um, kind of a federal policy reform of a visa system, but a lot of local employers, local state and local governments are frustrated in trying to create their own immigration policies. Just to give you an example, in Massachusetts, um, when Pres um, Governor Deval Patrick was uh, there, he tried to create a, a workaround within the H-1B visa system so that he could have a government entity issue the H-1B visas in conjunction with uh, universities because they're uncapped, so that entrepreneurs who are working there, um, who, started, um, who went to school in Massachusetts and then started up a company, um, can, can, can keep their company and work in, in Massachusetts. So a lot of, and Detroit, uh, Michigan, has lost a lot of um, population, and they've been trying to look at innovative ways as well in order to keep um, their, or attract high school immigrants to their state. So I think that what we really need to do in order to really fix a problem, you really can't have just executive actions, and we really just really need some comprehensive fix of the high-skilled immigration system. And how, here's how you do it. I think that you really need to streamline the system for foreign student F1 visas. We talked about, many people talked about this before, allow foreign students to actually apply directly to a green card. So if an employer wants them, um, then they could actually, not, they don't have to go through the obstacle course of going through OPT, H1B, and then hopefully get a green card one day. Secondly, you should think about, you should create a startup visa. This has already been talked about here in the house um, and a startup 3.0 which introduced back in January. I think this will be smart in terms of really if you're going to attract capital you should uh, be able to um, have a visa to be able to start your company and stay in the United States. H-1B visas, this has been quite controversial in some sense because if you increase the H-1Bs people think that people are just going to use it for um, cheaper labor. But a lot of my studies that I've shown with my colleagues, a lot of the H-1B workers themselves actually earn more than their um, comparable native-born workers. That means there is some shortage in specific H-1B occupations. 
Um, and for green cards, really just um, open up the, um, remove the quota for 7% per country and make a little bit more available because otherwise you're gonna to continue to have this backlog and this weight. And because the way the global economy works, India, China, well, China now is um, the uncertainty about their economy, but at least for the time, they still are very powerful countries and very big countries in their economy. And having them have long wait times as we're doing more trade with a lot of the Asian Pacific countries as well. When we have this, if we do have this TPP, um, you still have to pass it here in Congress, um, you will have more need for high school immigrants to go across borders to facilitate the trade between countries. So I think that's very important to fix the high school immigration system so that we could have a streamline um, and be competitive as, um, as we're dealing with a lot of countries and competing in the global economy. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, thank you to uh, the Cato Institute for having me here today. I'm going to try to continue the sort of steady stream of good news or hope uh, and optimism. Uh, Brink and I were talking beforehand about how generally in Capitol Hill, you know, if you say regulatory reform, it's, it's sort of a four-letter word. If you say regulatory reform, you immediately go to EPA, and the response is, you know, the air in China or seat belts and airbags, and that's because broadly the regulatory reform, at least as it exists now in Capitol Hill, and some of it is, I think, fairly strong reform. But a lot of regulatory reform in the Hill now is, as Frank and I discussed, is is process reform. It's giving Congress another bite at the apple after a regulation goes through. It's advanced notices of proposed rulemaking. It's judicial deference. So a lot of regulatory reform now is process-based. And what I think uh, we, we've talked about today is sort of four substantive areas where there's a lot of bipartisan agreement, uh, unlike regulatory reform as you sort of say it initially. And that bipartisan agreement will also have, much like regulatory reform broadly, you know, the potential of billions of dollars in, in economic benefits uh, to the nation at a time, as we mentioned, that we really need them. Um, but I'd like to take a, just sort of a, a macro look at regressive regulation generally, and to sort of say that there are two, two flavors of, or, or maybe I'm just looking at this from a particular perspective, but one view of, of regressive regulation is sort of barriers to entry to begin with, whether it's licensing reform, just getting in uh, to your preferred occupation, or it's barriers to entry just to enter the United States and work and continue your studies or continue your work here in the States. And there's also barriers to growth. And obviously, aggressive regulation sort of tackles uh, both of those as well. And one of my colleagues and I were, were curious about the extent of, of barriers to growth in regressive regulation. So we looked at 44 different industries, most of them uh, manufacturing, uh, manufacturing sector. We looked at data from 2001 to 2012, and we wanted to know how regulatory burdens impacted businesses by size. So BLS has these, sort of these tranches of business size, zero to five, you know, six to six to nine, 10 to 19, and up 1,000 and above. And we needed to know how regulatory burdens affected a business size. And the results, and I think the, the paper is, is out front, some of you might have it, not too surprising given the talk of, of regressive regulation today that if you are in a business with fewer than 50 employees, you saw four to 
8% decline in the number of businesses within that class size, fewer than 50 employees, uh, with the largest being in the 10 to 19 class. And this is as regulatory burdens increased by 10%. For the largest business sector, you didn't see that at all. You actually saw growth. So as regulatory burdens increased by more than 10%, if you were 500 and above or 1,000 and above, you saw growth of entities within that business class size of 1.7 to 3.4%. And that's with additional regulatory burdens. And we actually removed the controls from everything, and it was still sort of more or less the, the same results, which, which makes sense, I think, intuitively, because regulatory costs generally, whether at these four areas or elsewhere, are generally uh, fixed. And when you have sort of these fixed regulatory costs spread over a smaller base of assets, uh, that makes, it makes a big difference. One area, if anyone is fascinated to learn about the life of a regulatory compliance officer, uh, it is a growth industry. Um, so if right now, the, according to BLS, the median wage for a federal compliance officer is someone whose job it is to deal with regulation in general. And this is exclusive of lawyers. So this is just non-lawyers dealing with, with regulatory compliance. The average compliance officer makes about $66,000 a year. That's the median salary. And there are about a quarter million of them uh, nationwide. And it's a, it's a growth industry, as I mentioned. 10% uh, growth during the middle of the Great Recession in compliance officers. And one thing we found interesting, we looked back, BLS sort of does these projections with each uh, North American industry classification system uh, job title, basically. They do these projections. And we looked back at one of projections from 2005 and 2010. And sure enough, federal compliance officer exceeded uh, exceeded BLS projections in each, each report that we looked at. Uh, again, there's some sort of intellectual weight behind compliance officers and the regressive impact of regulation. There was a 2012 Minneapolis Fed study which looked at what it would cost small banks to hire two additional compliance officers, so probably at least $120,000. Two additional compliance officers would force one-third of small banks become uncompetitive or even just drop out of the market altogether. It would also reduce profitability by 45 basis points. And I think this makes sense because when you're talking about two compliance officers, uh, as we mentioned, if you're a small startup and you have to hire a lawyer and you're only five people, that's <laughs> you know, 20 percent uh, growth in, in your staff. And that's just devoted to whether or not it's handling the broken immigration system or the failed uh, copyright IP system, that's a huge burden. Whereas two compliance officers, if you're a multinational corporation, that's, that's a rounding error. You know, they might have gotten lost in the closet or you, just, they might have, you might not see them somewhere. But two compliance officers, it, it is not a huge burden when, you are, when you're that large. So, and from financial regulation, it makes sense because, again, these are fixed costs and they're typically spread over a smaller, a smaller base of assets. And that goes beyond financial regulation Again, to you can look to energy regulation as well, and I will, I will pick on greenhouse gas regulation, although not the Clean Power Plan, which was just passed, but uh, just, just reporting and monitoring of greenhouse gases. This is one of the, the first greenhouse gas rules that the EPA uh, promulgated. I think it was back in 2000, uh, 2009, 2010, just to sort of set up the monitoring system to know who was emitting what and in what volume. And this is according to EPA's math. If you were the smallest entity compared to the largest entity, just as for reporting and record keeping, your compliance costs were 65 times greater than that of your largest competitors. 
So we talk about regressive regulation. That is, is certainly one example. Uh, if you want to move to Department of Energy regulation specifically, uh, again, if you're if you're interested in uh, Department of Energy regulatory impact analysis, bless you, congratulations. But there, it's, it's actually strange because it's 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 they're very frank in their analysis, which agencies typically aren't. And I don't know why it doesn't get it doesn't get more coverage, but they're very frank. And here's one example. This is just from one regulation. This is Department of Energy sort of saying what the impact of one regulation energy efficiency rule would be on small manufacturers. And it is, it is possible the small manufacturers will simply choose to leave the industry or choose to be purchased by or merged with larger market players. So that is, that is in uh, Department of Energy regulatory text, and that is their acknowledgment that this regulatory burden might be too high for, for small market players. And another one, they said small entities may reevaluate the cost benefit of staying in the mobile home gas furnaces market. So you have even regulators telling small businesses, you might, you might just want to merge with the next guy who's a little bit bigger than you. The compliance costs as a percentage of revenue are going to be really high, or you can just leave the market altogether. And there have even been instances where I've seen where they've, they've sort of predicted or forecast that industry might just go to, to another country because of the compliance costs if, you're, if you happen to be a small, a small entity. And uh, before I conclude, I just want to try to, to put a lot of these, the regulatory world in perspective, especially with the four areas that we've highlighted today, and let people know sort of the, the huge opportunities we have for, uh, for benefits, for economic benefits, and they're in the billions. Uh, in, in the report, it said in, in 2011, the cost of defending against patent trolls, which is a great term, uh, was $29 billion in 2011. And that is, uh, when I read that, that is an insanely large figure, and I just want to try to put that in context for everyone. Uh, Motorola, the acquisition of Motorola was $12.5 billion. Uh, the Clean Power Plan, which I've mentioned, $8.4 billion. Again, that's compared to a uh, $29 billion to defend patent trolls. The ozone regulation, which was issued last week, which at one time was considered to be the largest regulation in, uh, in ever, ever promulgated, was $1.4 billion annually. Again, that's compared to $29 billion uh, for to defend patent trolls. According to the White House, uh, this is in fiscal year 2013, the cost of all cabinet-wide regulation adjusted for inflation was $3.2 billion. And again, that's compared to $29 billion to fend off patent trolls. And that $29 billion is just one part of the four years we've highlighted. And again, it sort of gets to that this is certainly uh, low-hanging fruit. And unlike other regulatory reform, there is sort of a bipartisan consensus. And it's one area that even conservatively could generate uh, billions of dollars uh, in economic growth. And when you put everything in perspective, it, it sort of makes you realize that you know, this is, this is an area ripe for reform. So, thank you.